Yo, 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 Thought Warriors, watch and listen to Higher Learning, where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, we're taping this. It's the end of June, but we're going to run it a little closer to the documentary. Great. Uh, Great. Jimmy Iovine is here. HBO is going to... I think July 9th. Yeah. July 9th. A massive documentary project called The Defiant Ones. Yeah. It's on my relationship with Dr. Dre and sort of how these two guys from, you know, different neighborhoods uh, stay together in some really difficult times and uh, built a business and, you know, and it's kind of, it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's a lot of good lessons in there, I think. At least I got some lessons out of it. <laughs> You're from Brooklyn? Yep. He was from Compton. Yeah, Compton. I, did, I Redder, wanted to make sure I got Redder, that right. I had to I'm take from Redder, a break. Brooklyn. He's from Compton. Yeah, and we lived in two, you know, in certain ways, racially charged neighborhoods, you know, and uh, went about our lives. And then we met up in 1990, and it just clicked. And um, he was um, a special guy, and we went through a lot, and you know, the whole death row thing, and. Mm. A lot of ups and a lot of really downs, and we stayed together, and then we created Beats, and now we're at Apple. What was the biggest down at Death Row? Oh, Tupac. Absolutely, that's 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 number one, two, and three. Yeah, the movie's out. Are you going to see it? Uh yeah, no, I'm going to see it. No, I've not seen it, but I'm going to see it. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. No, no, no. I didn't know where to start with you because there's too many places to go, but I knew I was going to end up at Death Row at some point, so I wanted okay. to talk about that a little bit. Okay. McEnroe, John McEnroe, ironically, we taped a podcast with him right before you showed up, and he was saying, ask him about this time, and he mentioned some, who was the rapper he mentioned, Tommy? Begin with a G. It was a one-hit wonder. And it, it, was, it was like an early, early rap, like mid-80s, and... Uh and McEnroe was like, I don't know about this. And you were like, no, no, there's something here with rap. I don't know. And you were kind of selling him on it. And he was like, I've always remembered that. He was really early. We had a lot of conversations about hip hop in the early days. You know, Johnny's a great guitar player, you know, and Mm. uh, at least he liked me. He he would like me to hear me say that. Um, (laughs) But um, he he loves to play the guitar and he loves music. You know, he loves Springsteen and all that. You know, so when hip hop was coming around, he was uh, he was not on he was not on board yet. You know. He, How did you get on board? Because your your Dr. background Dre, was totally different. Very simple. I came out of Rattle and Hum with you too, and uh, we went. I, I started Interscope, and right at Interscope was simple. One of the first things we did, we I met uh, John McClain came in and introduced me to Dre and Suge, and they played me the Chronic. And I didn't know a lot about hip hop, but I knew whoever this was was a great record producer, and I wanted to be involved with that person and. So we started working together, and the first five years of Interscope and Death Row were really uh, enormously successful, but enormously <laughs> say. complex. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> to say the least. Um, all right, so The Chronic. 
like how involved what are, what notes are you giving are you like hey maybe take a little easy on easy here no man maybe scale it back I, a tiny bit no 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 when i get involved with somebody who's really talented i just give them the keys and let them drive i got nothing to well, do those with are it. my favorite bosses yeah well I you got to do that. you got to i mean if you really know what talent is if you know the difference you know some people need help yeah but some people really don't As a matter of fact it works against it the minute you open your mouth and um he's one of those guys do you remember when he was telling you about Snoop and this guy needs to be on the album? And no, no, no. He brought me the album completely finished. Oh, absolutely. They they put the needle down and went the chronic, <laughs> and um, it was um, it was just incredible. It was I never heard anything like it. I didn't understand really hip hop that much, but as I'm listening to the words and I'm listening to what's going on, and it was in nineteen you know ninety one or whatever it was, and what was going on in L A. Yeah. I said, holy shit, these guys got it. You know, these, these guys are nailing what's going on right now. And and uh, whenever you can get involved with something like that, that, that poetic and that intense, I, I was lucky to be involved. So what's interesting about that, and you were living in LA at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And you, and then when you got into music in the 70s, or mm -hmm. early 70s, but all through, and the music was kind of, you know, it was capturing so many things that were going on young people, America, Vietnam, all these different things. And then you have hip hop in the nineties, the same thing. It's a lot of it's capturing what's going well, it's on. It's captured that vibe. I'm living in Boston. Around. I don't know what's going on that way. How the hell am I going to know that, you know, cops yeah. are killing people in Compton and stuff like that. Well, I mean, it's, uh, they reminded me of the Stones, Snoop and Dre. They had that whole Altamont thing, you know, that yeah. whole energy that the Stones had in the, in the late sixties and early seventies. And, I related to it like that. And that's why I knew, you know, I said, if we can get this exposed, it's going to be massive. Getting it exposed is the hard part. What was the, how did you get involved with Tupac? Tupac was signed by Tom Wally at Interscope. And, uh, you know, our, Tom's office was next to mine. And again, it was, uh, we, we split up the work and Tom did a lot of the work on Tupac. And Tupac was an extraordinary person to, to, to be in business with it. But, when you lose someone like that on your record company or in general, yeah. you know them, it's a massive loss. He was only 25 years old, you know, and uh, just, it's just shame. It's just, I have no idea why Tupac is dead. Do you feel like, I mean, I think it was five years, all the songs that he had, and then there was other ones that weren't even released and all that. What is, play out his career. What are the next 15 years of his life like if he lives? Because am, the amount of music he produced just in the five years was almost unparalleled. Well, I can't say. I can only say hope because he's a uh, big, and it is the word hope because he, he had two sides of him and he had a side of him that was really concerned about African-American culture and the inner city and stuff. And he would, he was going to be a real voice. You yeah. know, he would have hit his Marvin Gaye stage, you know, if he hadn't yeah. hit it already. And uh, he had a lot to say and John Lennon and he's like one of those. So I think anything could have happened, you know? Um, I, I mean, the music's all out. So people know what he did, but he only made that music in like three or four months. Right. He recorded like 200 songs or something like that, which is pretty. He was in jail. He came out like he, he went in the studio and just recorded it for three or four months, yeah. five months, whatever it was, and recorded so much music. But that doesn't account for when he, he would have been older and maybe seen something or, you know, because he, he had a great way of expressing the truth. Was your attitude something's going to happen to this guy? I'm worried. When, this when is going all, to the wrong place. Uh, I was worried for all of them. You know, to be honest, I was very nervous about them going to Vegas all the time because I knew there was a lot of heat in Vegas at the time, you know. And I was always concerned for Suge and all the guys that were going there during that. They would go to all the fights. Yeah. And, um, but you never, you just don't think that's possible. The East Coast, West Coast thing? What was your, as a detached observer, what was your... As it's as it's kept I escalating. I never again. I didn't understand. I, I didn't understand it because these are people. These are young guys that were making tons of money. They were making tens of millions of dollars a month. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, don't 
what, what's this about? You know, what's this about? And uh, it just kept escalating. And you keep thinking that it's okay, that this is going to be, oh, people are just going to go on and, you know, spend some money and have a good time. But it just kept on escalating to a point of complete ignorance. Yeah. Why do you think Dr. J didn't make more music? Because he, he only puts out what he really loves and he doesn't like a lot. He doesn't do it. He's only put his name on three albums his entire career, you know, yeah. as far as solo records. Put his name on beats. And um, now, now he's doing a television series. He's record, He's made a, a, a television series. For Apple, right? Yeah, he made yeah. it for himself, but uh, but it, it's uh, it's called uh, Vital Sign. It's really good. What's your role as somebody when you're close to an artist like that and – I mean, I would argue that even if he's careful with what he put out, just putting out three albums in 25 years doesn't seem like enough music. It's not. <laughs> so what do you do? How but do you, how do you, you cajole uh, them? You block and tackle, man. You know what I mean? There was a time where it's in the documentary where, you know, Universal told me to get rid of Dre because we were down like $15 million or something like that because he wasn't putting his music. I didn't put out Detox. And I said, yeah, but I, I'm going with him. If you, want, if you want him to go, I'm going. And because I just knew. I knew he was one of those people that come along every 25 years. Yeah. And um, I still believe it. I don't think he's anywhere near finished. Okay. Would you, would you think of straight out of Compton? I think he nailed it. Hey, um, uh, F. Gary Gray, Cube, Dre, all the actors, they killed it. You know, they really, they got the language right, which is so hard to get in a movie. The script was really, really good. And, the language was real and that's uh that was important that was very important had some great moments too i had ice cube on the podcast a couple weeks ago and we were just you know that movie just doesn't work unless they nail all three actors and what's that? unless they nail the three you know they have to nail dre they have to nail cube yeah and they have easy. to nail easy yeah and and i was like I said, I, I said, I was like, well, you lucked out. You went three for three. And he's like, it wasn't totally luck. Like we weren't going to make the movie until we knew we had the three. And, and a Q, lot of movies don't make that mistake. They Dre is not afraid of making anything and not putting it out. No matter the cost, the commitment, what doesn't matter. Yeah. If he doesn't feel it, it could still fail. But if he doesn't feel it, it's not coming out. All right, let's go backwards. So you, you get into the music industry, like the 72, 73 range. Mm -hmm. But you, are you, is it fair to say you were an engineer or yeah. were you more What I that? was, was I started out, uh, you know, was in every recording studio in those days, they were, they'd call you a general or, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're the boss It's the opposite. You do general work and you, you get to learn. So there's an engineer and an assistant and a producer in the room and you get to watch them and help them. Yeah. And then eventually you graduate to a uh, second engineer. And uh, so what happened was, which is in, it's actually in the documentary as well, is I, I used to do everything around the studio, clean it up, set it up, get microphones, you know. So one day my boss, his name was Roy Sakala, who owned the studio, uh, and um, his client was John Lennon. And they called me up on Easter Sunday and they said, we need you to come in and answer the phone. So I'm Catholic and I live in Brooklyn and I'm Italian. And so I said, absolutely. Because I felt, I was so insecure that I felt, I got to work harder than the next guy for me to get anywhere. For me to be useful to any of these people. What are they? they don't need me for anything. Yeah. So I went to my mother. I said, mom, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to work. She goes, no, you're not. Your suit's upstairs. Church is in an hour. And your whole family's coming over here. I said, mom, I'm going to work. Right. So I left and I got to the studio and I walked in and, and, and John Lennon and Roy Sakala are laughing. And they said, well, you know, uh, our assistant engineer just left and we wanted to see if you how much you wanted it. So we want you to become the third piece of this thing. Mm. And it was, a, you know, that was the beginning of my career. Easter Sunday, uh, 1973. Who's your role model at that point? What it, like you, you obviously want to get in the music industry. Do you even have somebody you're pointing no. to and saying, I want to be like that guy? No. Well, I yeah, I liked I liked music. I liked Phil Spector's music, but I didn't want to be like right, you know, you're a crazy uh, person. You know, uh, no, there was nothing, man. I, I I didn't know anybody. I mean, I knew my father. 
You know but your I dad do? said you had like just an unbelievable ear for music, like the whole time. Like there was well, something different about how you heard things. I think, you know, I, I, I turned out when I got into the studio, I was finally natural at something. And yeah. I finally wasn't afraid of something. Cause what happened was when I used to play sports, when I was a kid, I was the guy that was like, please don't hit it to me. Right. You know, you, you got the uniforms on, you're out there and you're <laughs> yeah. like, okay, hit it to anybody else. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was the obvious thing when I got into the studio and I started doing my first mixing, like I mixed a song called Sweet Little 616 for John Lennon on the rock and roll album. I was like, hit the ball to me. And just mm. it, my, I, what happened was I said in the, in, in the documentary, the thing that seems to be landing with young people is at a certain point, we all have fear and it's a gigantic headwind. But at a certain point, if you can flip it and make it a tailwind, it's got massive energy, massive energy, and you can really get you through a lot. And that's what happened to me on, on John's album is when I first, in retrospect, when I first realized that that feeling became something that was pushing me forward and into things rather than holding me back. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Why did young people respond to that? Young people don't respond to anything. Of course. Because they, that's all they responded to. They feel that's great. they they want. They think that's a mad. They said, "Wow, how'd you do that?" Because I I'm frozen. Yeah, I'm frozen. Expectations. Well, they're frozen because they're staring at their yeah. phone. Well, how could you not? Well, th- th- by the way, Instagram. If I was a kid in Brooklyn and I saw all these people on Instagram having the greatest time, having the greatest girls, doing the greatest things, the greatest clothes, I'd be frozen. Yeah. I'm like, how can my life compare to that? So I go make up some bullshit and say, okay, let's go make my life look interesting. You know, I mean, I don't know how people aren't frozen today. I don't know how they do it. It's, it's, it, every kid I walk over to has anxiety and depression. I said, I, I understand. How could you not have anxiety or depression when everybody you see on Instagram, et cetera, is having the greatest life in the world? Right. You, you know, it's a good point. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, shit. You know, uh, so that's what they were relating to. They were relating to how do I get this monster out from in front of me? Did you catch John Lennon at a good time in his career? I caught John at a very volatile time in his career. He yeah, it was seventy three to seventy, late seventy five. Yeah, so I was going to say whole, he was had some issues going on. It was right? a long weekend. Yeah. It was L- I came to L A with him. I did three albums with him. Yeah, and um, it was a tough time for him. But it was also when he was going to court, uh, being. Um, trying to get thrown out. Uh, Nixon was trying to take his green card away. Yeah. Don't try to take his visa away. Uh, I'm not sure if he had a green card yet, but um, he was going to court every day and coming to the studio after that during Walls and Bridges. And I saw him every day. And that was the first time I realized, whoa, the government isn't always do the right thing. I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I was a Catholic kid from Brooklyn, right. grew up, and my dad was a longshoreman. My, we, we were supposed to respect the government, respect church, everything. And now all of a sudden, this guy that I know is really the truth. Richard Nixon's trying to throw him out of the country because of what he's saying. And I was like, that was the first time I started to go, oh, because I was 19. I was saying, oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it was like, really, maybe, maybe it was late, but it was the first time it hit me. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a president that would act irrationally like that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what are you Tell do, me more. Man? It's uh, <laughs> what was know, that like? That was exactly right. Uh, let's guess, stay away from that way. one. Yeah. So um, I'm a Springsteen guy. I think there's two people in this world. There's Spr- Springsteen guys, and then everybody else. That's right. um, I don't know. I'm in my 40s, so I don't. I don't know how he resonates with like people under. Tate, do you care about Springsteen? I mean, yeah. Tommy. Yeah. Okay. I never know with these things, but, uh, you know, Born to Run, which I would still put on the short list of the all-time great albums. It's an incredible album. And it just sounds like he was a maniac making it. I mean, at one point, he almost gave up on it. He was going to do it live. Like, he was the ultimate torture genius. He seems like a lot more mellow now than he was in 1975. Well, he hides it better. No, I... He hides it better. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He... um, I learned my work ethic from Bruce Springsteen. I grew up, you know, um, thinking you had a job. And, you know, you finish your job. Bruce has never finished. See, John was like a Beatle. Like, so they used to record fast. Yeah. The Beatles always recorded fast as they made all those albums. So John's thing was like, I'm done in 10 hours, eight hours. You know what I mean? Right. Bruce, 
is never done. So it was like the first time I realized that you just stay in a state of pain until the music's right. And I learned that from him, and it was an amazing gift. At the time, it felt really painful, but uh, I learned I learned I learned my work ethic from Bruce Springsteen. Did you ever worry that he wasn't going to release the album? Oh, well, there's a fabulous story that I'm not sure if I made the movie or not. But what happened was we, we finished Born to Run. One day we were doing Born to Run, and Bruce was like, "No drugs," you know. So. Or we had to stay. He was away. drunk on life. He was drunk on drunk on intensity. He was drunk in yeah energy. Yeah, and so I'm there. We're mixing the album, and it's like we had eight songs. So we had nine days to mix them because he didn't have any money. No, none of us had any money. You know, so we had to go. On, he had to go play a gig. So we're mixing the album after all that time, and I'm like, so like I'm exhausted. And we're mixing. She's the one, and. I'm up to like, it's like two days now where maybe I fell asleep on like a couch outside for a minute, but it was like, you know, coffee and tea and everything you could possibly imagine. Soda, anything with caffeine in it to stay awake. I even tried those trucking pills once, and <laughs> which I hated. And um, so we... I I go to look at my assistant and I said, "What are you What are you chewing?" He said, "It's it's it's spearmint." I said, "Give me that thing." So I took the spearmint gum, and I took the gum and I threw it in the garbage and I chewed the aluminum foil. And I don't know if you've ever done that on a cavity. Oh my god! It woke me up. It it was it was like electric shock, and I mixed the record while chewing it, and it was so painful. So we finished the album. Now I have to master it, right? And and if you look at any photos of me that day, I was uh, it was unbelievable. So now he's playing a gig in um, he's playing a gig out in um, I think it was Boston or something. I had to take a train. I had to take a five hour train ride. So I master the album. I get it. It's on it's on lacquer, and I bring it out to him to play to him. So he doesn't have a record player on the road. So we go to a record store that no one knows. We don't know what the speakers sound like. We don't know anything, but we also don't know what we're doing. So we go in the record store. He hears it. And, he, you know, he's, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So we head back to his hotel. It was one of those motel kind of places. And his room was right outside the pool. He took the, he took the lacquer and just threw it in the pool. And oh, said, my God. We're doing this over again. And I, my friend that I took from my old neighborhood had a bunch of Valium with him and I took it in order to get home. <laughs> I just said, give me that shit. <laughs> and um, I got on the train and it was just, thank God for John Landau because he uh, saved the day and the album finally came out. That was always strange to me that somebody who wrote about Bruce Springsteen ended up becoming his manager and confidant. He really I don't even know what him. the equivalent of that would be now. I don't know. It's pretty but he rare. Really understood him. He and he was a great producer, Landau. Yeah, Landau was a terrific record producer, and um, just had an understanding of music that intellectually Bruce really connected with and a love for it. And uh, he was a great resource for Bruce Springsteen. And you did all the Springsteen albums all the way through Tunnel no. of Love, or did, no. when did you go? I off? did two albums. I did Darkness and I did Born to Run in Darkness because I really there was no space for me on their production team, so I wanted to produce records. So I I went from darkness into Patty Smith. Gotcha. And I did Easter with her. Wait, so you weren't involved at all with Springsteen after that? Not only as friends. Oh. I, only did, I only did those two albums because I was an engineer and I I started producing. I did. I went from Patty, then I went into Tom Petty. I did uh, Damn the Torpedoes with Tom Petty. Right. And you were responsible for the Patty Smith. You for because the night, yeah, because yeah, the night yeah. was on darkness. It was going to be on darkness. I like. I know you've told that story a million times, but I like your description of it. How it just felt like it well, would have resonated more if a girl sang the song. Yeah, it's just very simple, you know. You know, take me, baby, here as I am. I, I just felt if a guy hears a woman sing these song lyrics, it can't miss, <laughs> right. you know. And um, it. Um, 
I was right. <laughs> and uh, Bruce uh, wasn't going to use it on his album. So I just knew. And then Patty finished the verse and just took off from that aggressive that theme, you know, and she's, you know, she sings, uh, you know, desire is hunger is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed, which was a kind of very similar kind of vibe where Bruce was going. And my first hit record as a record producer. So it changed my life. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Did you think in 1975 Springsteen was going to become the biggest white music music star in the world? Man, because it happened nine years later. In 1975, I didn't think there was going to be 1976. Right. You know, uh, I had no idea. I I knew that when it came out, that it was big, and I wasn't. You know, I didn't. I'd never been involved myself with something that that was that big and new from something really not a lot of people knew about. So it was an incredible feeling. And the shows were so incredible. Yeah. I, used to go, I used to go record the shows as well. Oh my well God. In the like truck. four and a half hours. All those great bootlegs out. I recorded, you know, CW post and live in uh, Cleveland. Oh, the Hammersmith the, one. Uh, the I, didn't do, I didn't do England. I okay. didn't go to, I didn't go to Europe, but I did everyone in America, the Roxy yeah. bottom line. And it's just four, four and a half hours every night. No, not in those days. Those days it was two, two and a half hours. I wonder what I wonder at the first, the second concert I ever saw was Springsteen, like 1980. And he just kept doing encores and like people, he like wore the audience out. People were ready to leave. It was oh, like, oh, know, I'm coming back again. I got Here's to ask that about him. I, to, I got to ask him about that recently because we, our, uh, my wife and I went to um, Italy to watch him play and we stayed with him uh, in Italy. And next morning, he did a four and a half hour show. I just got off a plane. And, and next morning we got up, we were having breakfast. I said, and I, we're talking about exercise. And he says, you know, I, I said, cause he's really. He's in amazing shape. Yeah. He's in amazing shape. So I'm always talking to him about, I don't have the discipline he does. But I never had the discipline he does. He drives me nuts with this, that discipline thing. Cause he's so incredible at it. But I said to him, why four and a half? So I said, what about this exercise? He goes, look, Jimmy, just don't do anything to hurt yourself. So I looked at myself, what about four and a half hours at 67 years old? You know, he says, well, you know, I can't help that. He says, once the audience gets going, he just loves I'm going to take them on. You know what I mean? He goes, and we're going to go toe to toe. And he just, by the way, he doesn't even have a set list. He has a set list, but he completely throws it away. Yeah. And he calls the songs one after the other. It's, I mean, if anyone has a chance to see Bruce Springsteen, they should go see it. Yeah. Well, what's cool about like him from 71 to 75, basically, you know, when you hear some of those live, the things, cause he would always tell the stories, which I always love. Yeah. Like, when I was growing up and yeah, he yeah, tells yeah, his yeah, whole yeah. things and there's like, you can feel like he knows he has the potential and the people around him know, and you can hear the crowd screaming and like people clearly knew in Jersey, this guy's yeah. a comet that's passing through us and it's going to become something way more well, what special. what happened with Born to Run was it started to just take over everywhere. And then all yeah. of a sudden, because then he But he didn't it. want that though, I don't think, right? Wasn't he a little afraid of massive success like that? Well, he was, was afraid of the way they promoted it. With the time and Newsweek thing freaked him out. And then he went to England and it said, the future of rock and roll, they used John's quote. It was on right. all the posts. He actually went around and ripped them all down. Yeah. And, you know, he was... Uh, He's an incredible person. <laughs> he yeah. just is, you know, and I, I, I still, I'll say it again. I don't have anything to do with his life tours, but if anybody has a minute yeah, and take your kids so they get inspired like that, because that's, that's what work looks like. And, and you caught incredible. Tom Petty pretty young. I did. I, I, Tom Petty, I, 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 that was after Patty Smith. Yeah. You know, he heard that album and 
they asked me to get involved in their record and you know i was lucky it was the same exact thing bruce had two albums and the second one didn't do as well as the one before it and so did tom so i went in on their third album so i applied all the principles of springsteen as far as my work was concerned what are the principles just that to, you have to just really make everything about that third album and those, you know, has to be better than that second album. Just that much better. So you think the third album's the, the key album? In those days, yeah. when you're making records like that now, I don't know what's the third album, the first album. It, it, <laughs> so many things are confusing right yeah. now. But, but in those days, it was you built it because there wasn't, you know, SoundCloud. You just built it and had to sell every song door to door. You yeah. got a hit on the radio, but... So the third album, if you got to make a third album, that means you've been touring now for three or four years. And the, and at a certain point, you've got to pull out. You've got to go for the lead. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's the time around the third album. I just had a conversation with Kendrick Lamar, Kendrick Lamar at my house about that before when he's making this album. That's a great name drop. I'm, I'm really like... What? No, it's just great. I've I've always wanted to do a podcast with somebody who said I just had a conversation with Kendrick Lamar. I'm on the edge of my seat now. Well, Dre Dre signed him to yeah, I know. to Aftermath, right? So he was at my house and he was doing something with us, and he um, I said to him, you know, you're on your third out because he was on Interscope. Yeah, right. So now I'm not at Interscope anymore, but I still I still him and Top Dog are fantastic. So I said I said Kendrick, you're on your third album. First of all. Don't make it on the road like everybody's doing their records right now. Take time off and make it because it's the most important album you're going to make in your young life, mm. in, in in your 20s and 30s. Because you get this right, you'll go rather than if you just if it just if it's just okay. And uh, he wrote me a note saying that uh, he really appreciated that because it inspired him. But he's he's one. So of the, you're saying take like. Three months off? No. Four? No. How, how much with, time? What's, what's wrong with the music business right now is that artists are convinced that there's no money in recording, so they spend all their time on the road. Yeah. So Doing shows. That means they're not making records. So they're spending less time in the studio. Less time in the studio is going to possibly make inferior records. Yeah. So you think his, now that you gave him that advice... This next one, if he listens to it, this next one will be the one. No, his third album. He, that's this album out right now. Oh, you gave? I thought you gave him that advice recently. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm with you now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No. So I, did he thank you in the liner notes? Oh, he was so sweet. No, no, no. But he wrote me a note. <laughs> did they have sure, liner I'm notes sure anymore? The, I'm, I'm not sure the the no how much it influenced him, but he got it. He got it, and because people don't think like that now. They yeah. just drop singles and run around. You know, it's uh, it's it's tough. It's tough for artists, right? It now. was the rare. Album that actually felt like an album in 2017. Like they, That's there was I'm a saying. coherence to it. That's and they what I'm were, saying. The titles look cool. All you know that. how yeah. that Adele, Ed Sheeran, Kendrick, yeah. people that Drake, people that take the time off and make the records. Hmm. You can't make the records because somebody in Dubai wants to pay you half a million dollars. So you go to Dubai, leave the studio and go make a record. You know, and uh, and not make your record. So I, that's what uh, I think. That's one of the things the record industry is suffering from right now. People are not putting time into the records that they should. You almost can't even call it a record industry anymore. It's like a song industry. Yeah, it's or a song factory. I want. I want to know what all is going on in the world right now. Where's Where's Marvin Gaye? Where's I, Stevie I swear Wonder? to God, I was going to ask you this, like. Because we talked earlier about the 70s and how the music that came out of all these different things that were going on. Then you saw it again in the 90s. Why isn't that happening yet I in don't know. 2016, I 17? I waiting. Kendrick, Kendrick <laughs> Kendrick's tapped the into guy, it. Absolutely. There's a few people, but Kendrick has it all. Kendrick has the music, the lyric, the attitude, the idea, the inspiration. Kendrick's got it. Kendrick has that thing, you know, that Patti Smith had. You know, Who, who else do you think had that? Oh, I mean, that you worked with. John is Lennon, it a short list or is Bono it a. Bono had it, John Lennon had it, Bruce Springsteen had it. You know, I was, uh, I've been fortunate to be involved with a lot of people that saw music in a way to, to move, to move the needle both socially and popular culture and, you know, saw, read the world and repeated it and, and, and spoke for it, you know. But, 
naturally the greatest of all time is Bob Dylan, you know, but. Wow, you're giving him the GOAT title. Oh, yeah. That's that's easy. Really? Yeah. And and, and great. I, 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 I'll give you another one. The greatest rhetoric executive of all time, Barry Gordy. Simple. When Barry Gordy was making records, his artists weren't allowed off the bus down south. And this guy made, crossed over and right. made pop music, made urban music acceptable in pop music and took it over. What he did was a miracle. And those records are one better than the other. None of us after him had that. Yeah. <laughs> had to deal with that. And you did, you worked with Stevie Nicks. Yeah, I did Belladonna. Who, according to my internet research, you also dated. Yeah, I did. We did. <laughs> For the making of the album. I was, how, long, how long did that relationship last? Well, I was completely uh, a social cripple. And so I had no idea. I had no idea how to do anything socially. So I went out there, immediately recorded the record. And we, she moved into my house. And we made the album. And then she was like the iconic rock babe of the late seventies, early eighties. I I know you realized that as it was happening. I, I was so focused on not getting the work right and having a bomb album that I didn't, we never went anywhere. Yeah. Cause that was a weird era, right? Where people didn't even feel like if a woman was in a band, they shouldn't spin off and have their own album. And that's exactly what yeah. happened. Fleetwood Mac did not want her to have her own album. Yeah. Well, why would they want her to become more famous? That's, right. That means she's so, just going to leave the band. And the same thing happened on that album with Tom Petty and Stop Dragging My Heart Around. That was Tom's song. I just did the same oh, trick. Now I, yeah. Did the same trick twice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Fleetwood Mac, I've always been obsessed with. I know you weren't involved with rumors, but I still think that's the most interesting album that's ever come I, out I just because of all the weird relationships that were involved. I, that's the only thing. I, one, that's one of those albums like Born to Run that would make an incredible stage play. <laughs> yeah, you're you right. Know, Could rumors. you have the behind the scenes stuff in it? Excuse me? I mean, everyone's dating everybody and then they I make would, all the songs yeah, well, are about well, the well, failed what, relationships. That's the yeah, would, That's what the play would be, right? <laughs> so you would, have, you would have scenes, songs, and then scenes of the... I don't oh, know. That'd be interesting. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't. I'm not doing it, but somebody should. That's a good idea. Yeah. And then you did uh, you two under did, the blood red sky. I under blood red sky, which and, and I, I that's wore into the ground on my eight. Was eight track back in '83? What was it? Was yeah, eight track, right? Yeah, there was some eight tracks involved in that. And um, what happened was, I was down in the dumps, and I was I started to become a producer. that was producing established artists and I couldn't get any young artists because the label, I was too expensive or whatever labels. Yeah. They, they thought I had, I had too much influence or, you know, oh. so I was working with Bob Seeger and Stevie Nicks who were great and Dire Straits who were great, but I wanted a new artist. And my ex-wife called me, was at the Us Festival. Actually, she was working for Westwood One and she was covering it. And she goes, there's a guy down here you've got to see. And I flew down and I saw you two playing. So it's like 1982? The Us Festival. Yeah. And I followed them to Ireland and I tortured oh, wow. them until they worked with us. I, I mean, mean, that was like a, a great era to torture you too. It was. Then I did Rattle and Hum with them um, five years later. I was going to ask you about that because I was in college when that came out and coming off the Joshua Tree, that was about as anticipated of a next album. Yeah, so they For kind of took a left turn. Than I can remember. It was smart what they did. They took a left turn. You know, they went to um, they went to live sort of studio album combined. And, yeah. Um, smart what they did because you look back on that album. That album is actually a great. Album. Oh, it's loaded. That it was weird. We were people were like weirdly a tinge disappointed with it when it That's came right. out. That's right. Because they couldn't win with whatever right. they released. That's right. But you go back and listen now. That desire is an incredible Angel of Harlem. Oh yeah. We went all over the country to record that album. You know, there's a really good documentary about them that not a lot of people have seen about the couple years after they made that album when they almost broke up and then they ended up going to Germany and it was kind of that yeah. fork in the road moment that a lot of bands have. Yeah, that was- Where they've uh, had some success and it's either going to well, keep going after, or it's going to That end. was after Rattling Home. Yeah. Look, I stopped producing records after that. I started Interscope. That's how hard that record was to make. That's how hard Rattling Home was? Yeah. It was brutal. It just it finished you? For me, yeah. Yeah. They, as Bono would say, they, and he says it in the documentary, he says, well, we broke them. 
<laughs> I couldn't do it. I, I just, I, I just, I'm said I'm done. I when it's hard, is it because the group's fighting with each other? Is it because they're being perfectionists? What makes it hard? You can't get what you want. You can't get what you want, then you won't settle for something that, unless it's what you want. And Bono and the band are really like that. And to a certain extent, I'm like that. But as the producer, it's all going through you. All the energy's going through you. The music's going through you. So you, you know, you're getting hit with all of it. And that album, I was, at that moment, I was producing records for about 15 years already. And I just said, you know what? Then I heard them talking and saying, they didn't ask me to do the follow-up album. Yeah. But I think it was Octune Baby. Octune Baby is the next and, one. And uh, I heard them saying they were going to go to Berlin to record it. I said, I'm not going to Berlin. <laughs> You're like, I'm out. Good luck, guys. I am, they didn't ask me, but I said, even if they asked me, I'm not going to Berlin. So I started a record company, <laughs> and it was Interscope. So that kind of worked out. So <laughs> When you start a record company, what happens? Do you need... Did you do it with your own money? Did no, you have no, a partner? No. How'd you do put, it? Ted, my partner, Ted Field, put the money up. I brought yeah. some money in from Atlantic Records with that. I was getting a deal with, so we brought that money together. And um, Tom Wally and John McClain were working for Ted. And we started Interscope. And it just, there was something about the combination of the people that just caught fire. And, that and was it became it. like, it was one thing after the other. It just kept working, you know? How much of it was being shrewd and how much of it was luck? You know, I, I think that, uh, I, I gotta be honest with you. We had, there were some talented people at Interscope. Yeah. John McClain's an extraordinarily talented person. Uh, the found, that found Dr. Dre for us, man, Tom Wally, who discovered Tupac, really talented. And Ted was very talented. So I'd have to say that, uh, the Interscope people was a really good team. Probably a different, different element of characters. With Interscope, like some unsavory characters, like we talked about earlier, like some of the people that they ran around with, like, did, did you ever think, you know, not no. that your life was in danger, but like, well, yeah. did you ever think no, like, no, oh I, shit, I, I'm worried, I'm a little there, worried about myself here. There were times where it was scary, you know, because it's not just the guys, it's the guys. The hanger on guys. All the guys yeah. that are trying to get to the guys, you yeah. know what I mean? And then all of a sudden East Coast, West Coast breaks out. And you got a mess and, uh, you know, it's music. But at that time, I don't think there's ever been anything like that in the history of the music business. And this no. documentary covers it like crazy. It mm. really, um, it shows that whole thing and that era in episode three really powerfully. And the director did a good job because it was, it was scary. It was dangerous. It was great. It was awesome. And there were certain things that were horrible. So like a lot of, and then we had Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor at the same time as right. well. So we had, we had it from both sides. And then Time Warner, that's when they, uh, the government came out against us and Time Warner, um, we were able to get out of our, our deal and move over to Universal because they didn't want to put the music out. How did you get involved with Geffen? Geffen's just been a friend. John Landau Springsteen introduced me to Geffen and he's been um, an older brother. And actually David taught me everything I know about business. Geffen taught me. So you're still good with Geffen? Oh yeah. Because yeah. people are either all in or all out on him with I'm no in between. I'm all in all the time, always, forever. We've <laughs> never, I've never thought about, he's the greatest man. He smart as anything he still is. And he taught me really the art of business, you know, because it's an art form. If you the really good guys, give me like two them. tips. Um, Bank of America, no. <laughs> uh, it's just, like two uh, two good lessons from him. Well, you know, um, it's funny. Um, he, he he he. There's a lot. Like for example, when I was going through that whole thing at Time Warner, and I I thought we were going to get thrown out, he looked at me very calmly and said, "You're not that lucky." Because he knew what they were doing was bullshit. Yeah. Based on lyrics, it was a, it was a red herring. It was nonsense. Yeah. So he kind of calmed me down. I said, wait, getting out's a good thing. Okay. Let me get out. Because then you still got the company. Yeah. So, um, but he's always there on stuff like that. Always. Chessboard you know, stuff. Clear. Just the shortest distance between any two spaces is David Gaffin. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, um. He's an awesome guy in this area. So 
you and you and Dre, you do beats. Beats takes off. Mm-hmm. Then eventually, you, you, like many other people, saw the potential of a streaming company. You start that, and then Apple eventually buys everything. Yeah. And now, you're still in charge of Apple Music, yeah, right? I'm in charge of Apple Music uh, with, with with a bunch of people. And um, so, what like what's your inner circle? How many people are actually running this thing? Apple Music. Well, yeah. there's probably you know four or five people that are doing it together, the senior people. But then there's a lot of people that work there naturally, and. We have, um, we're trying to build, we're trying to build something with elegance. We're trying to build a relation between the audience and the artist that brings some elegance to it because the competition is free music and it's, uh, you have to, you have to bring something to the party. The service has to be of service. Yeah. That's the reason to grab you in to say, okay, it's helping me. If we're not helping you, why are you going to sign up when you can just go get the music for free? What's the, what's the best criticism that has been levied? about Apple Music in the last two years? Well, in the early days, the, the UI was very complicated and it's not anymore. That's, you know, that was, um, that was true. Uh, and uh, we fixed it. That thing was, that, that's, that's one of them. And uh, that was the main one. The UI was just not right. Do you feel like there has to be a winner in this streaming thing? No. Or can 10 people be doing it no. at the same time? No, streaming has to be a winner. We're not sure about that yet. Okay. There's only 100 million people on streaming. Of course, there's a free tier. The fight, the streaming's issue. Now, it is so worth $10 a month to get all the music in the world. And if you use it, there's so much depth in there. We have things like, I just go in and I, I we have a whole um, radio segment, right? Where I just patch in my favorite Bob Dylan song. And it plays me a different radio station every day. That is so awesome. Cause we also have human curators where we make the list. We have people to make the list personally. Yeah. You know? And um, so Apple music is very, very, very musical. And um, so it's worth it, but it's hard to explain to people that, you know, music is, if it's free, why am I paying for it? Well, you're selling it to, at least the under 30 generation, like these two guys over here, they're used to not paying for stuff. That's right. And being able to That's right. cut corners and sneak around and get through this or go in this yeah. link and now you're getting it That's anyway. why you have to be of service. You have to be great. You have to hook them through. So you're you trying know. to do it through like DJs, no, no, through no. different channels, no, through curation. Like we have a thing on the service called For You, which every day when you wake up, there's new music for you. Like for example, they just, I've seen that. I've always ignored it on my oh, on no, my man. Apple. I'll play you mine from today. I'll play you mine from today. And um, here's mine from today. You ever play music on here? On what? On the radio, on your podcast? Um, no, we can't. License it, right? We can't now. Look, look, here's here's what, this is crazy. This this is what it served me today. Stevie Nicks? No. Oh. What it thinks that I'm going to like. Huh. Apple Music. So here, it starts with this. Springsteen. Right, then it goes to this. The Ramones, I'm going to be oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Then it goes to this. Then it goes to this. So that knows you really well. Then it goes to this. <laughs> and then it goes to this. Wow. Okay. That and thing then, knows you. And it keeps going. So I'm saying it knows me. And that is what we're really working on. Make your life easier and give you like that playlist. I know tomorrow morning I will be swimming with this playlist. Yeah. You know? Can you win and Spotify can win at the same time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if streaming wins, we all win. There's plenty of room, man. There's plenty of room. I think streaming is going to win. The thing I can't figure out is the subscription stuff. and That's what I'm calling streaming. Because we're seeing in the digital no, media. Streaming is one. Subscription's got to win. I, I phrased it wrong. Because we're seeing it with uh, you know, digital media. And yeah, you're yeah, seeing yeah. now newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. No, and all, New York. Streaming is one. They figured it out. It's will subscription music win. And I, I, you know, I'm hopeful. What would be the biggest obstacle to it winning? Other Free. than young people. Free. The labels have licensed their music for free. Where do you see podcasts fitting into this whole thing? Uh, podcasts, we are starting to do them on Apple Music, you know, and I think podcasts are really interesting and great ways uh, to learn things and understand. And, you know, on-demand stuff is fantastic. So we're very bullish on podcasts at Apple. 
Okay. So it's like you, you, they control like 70% of them basically. Like I think for most people's downloads, I know with ours, it's definitely like probably 70% get them through iTunes. Oh yeah. Well, and, we're, we're bullish on them, you know, we're going to take it a little more serious as well. Once we get there's so much to do. Though. So all these great people you worked with, is there a common, common thread with what made them great? When you think about like Springsteen and Dre and John Lennon and Bono, is there, is the there lack something? Of com- the lack of compromise. Lack, lack of, of compromise. compromise. Yeah. They will not compromise. That's it. Period. You couldn't buy rent Bruce Springsteen. You can't, there's nothing you, there's nothing that you have that he wants. <laughs> and that's the most frightening thing in the world. So this documentary is July 9th. HBO. HBO, four parts, like four days in a row. How yeah, are they doing Four it? days in a row. Four days in a row. Yeah. This is great because there's never anything on in July. July is like when, when sports uh, dies, except for baseball and all this, all, you know. Yeah, I mean. There's very rarely anything I think, going on. I think it's, 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 it's meant to inspire, you know, and it's, it's very truthful. What's the most embarrassing thing you can say about Eddie Q in this podcast? Because he might be listening. I've known him for a while, so you could be mean if you want. Eddie Q, there's there's a, I mean, there's a lot of embarrassing things I can say. No, <laughs> <laughs> he's um he's a beast, you know. He, he's a uh, I live down near him in Cabo as well, you know, and I work with him all the time. And he's like, he's in your face. He's just a guy that just tells you the way he hears and feels it. You know what I mean? He's a Beast of a guy and a great guy and, and, and it could, yeah, guy from Silicon Valley. He's really, he's he's a lot like a content guy. He he breathes and he feels like a very creative, you know, artistic person because he has a great feel for what you're doing. And you know, he's a sports fanatic, you know. And I find him to be, uh, uh, I'm very lucky that he's the guy that bought our company. So what do the next five years look for you? Look like for you? Oh man, I'm 64 years old, man. You know what I'm saying? I, I just want them to be there right now. <laughs> That's what they look like. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you. That was thank fun. Thank you, man. All right.